Welcome to a special edition of Impact Audio. As part of a company-wide book club, Submittable team members recently read the second edition of Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva. We were so grateful when Edgar agreed to join us on September 9th, 2021, for a Q&A style conversation about the book, about healing, colonialism, white supremacy, participatory grant making, pop culture, and much, much more. It was incredible, and we hope you enjoy this recording. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this special event. Thank you for being with us. Uh, if I haven't met you in person or online, hi, I'm Rachel Mindell, Content Marketing Manager at Submittable. Uh, to begin today, I'd like to share two land acknowledgements. Uh, the first is an official statement from the city of Missoula where Submittable headquarters is located. The city of Missoula acknowledges that we are in the Aboriginal territories of the Salish, Kootenai, and Kalispell people. Today, we honor the path they have always shown us in caring for this place for the generations to come. And I'm coming to you remotely from Tucson, Arizona, on the land and territories of indigenous people. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the O'odham and the Yaqui. Submittable is so pleased and lucky to be sharing virtual space today with Edgar Villanueva as part of our company-wide book club and podcast recording. Hi, Edgar. <laughs> Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to have you. Edgar Villanueva is an award-winning author, activist, and expert on issues of race, wealth, and philanthropy. He is the principal of the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital, and as you know, author of the best-selling book, Decolonizing Wealth. He advises a range of organizations, including national and global philanthropies, Fortune 500 companies, and entertainment on social impact strategies to advance racial equity from within and through their investment strategies. Uh, Villanueva holds a BSPH and MHA from the Gillings Global School of Public Health at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is an enrolled member of the Lumbee Tribe and resides in New York City. We're here today to celebrate the second edition of Decolonizing Wealth with a Q&A style discussion facilitated by Submittable's VP of Social Impact, Sam Kaplan. Sam brings over 20 years experience in philanthropy to his role. He has served as a founder of uh, New Spark Strategy, Chief Information Officer at the Walton Family Foundation, and the Director of Technology at the Walmart Foundation. He consults, advises, and writes prolifically on social impact technology, strategy, and innovation. Thanks to everyone who helped make today's event happen. Thank you, Edgar, for being here. Thank you to Tamana Mansuri um, for all your coordination and thanks to the teams at Sunshine Sacks and the Decolonizing Wealth Project. Thanks Submittable for purchasing books um, and a special shout out to Jordan Marvin, our media guru and Natalia Di Robertus Thai for dreaming up this event uh, as well as Laura Steele and Carrie Ann Strickland for their support. Now I'll turn it over to Sam. All right, thank you so much, Rachel. And um, I was uh, telling Edgar right before we joined, I, I think we literally have more than half of the company joining us today for uh, this really special book club. So um, a huge thank you to all of our colleagues uh, at Submittable. So excited that you guys uh, volunteered to read the book and that you've asked some great questions and that you're joining us today. And Edgar, thank you so much for joining us as well, taking time out of your really busy schedule. We know that the second edition of Decolonizing Wealth has just released. I can only imagine that you're super busy these days, right? Um, never a dull moment, but it's been really exciting. <laughs> I have to ask, do you feel kind of like a rock star? I mean, since the first edition of Decolonizing Wealth came out, like I've been following you 
And your book has probably been like one of the most popular books, conversation starters. The topic of decolonization has just absolutely exploded across the field of philanthropy. Like, how do you feel about all of this? Um, It's a bit unreal, to be honest. Um, You know, it's to kind of pull your heart and, you know, into writing something. I, I knew probably a few people might read it. My mom would buy a few books, but uh, to actually kind of, you know, take a step to do that and to have your, your experience to be validated and your perspectives to be celebrated and actually adopted in so many ways is, is really the best um, blessing that I could ever imagine. Um, so it is very surreal <laughs> in a lot of ways. And um, I'm daily inspired by the folks who share stories with me about how uh, the work has really uh, shaped their careers or influenced their work in so many different ways. So it's been a journey. Awesome. Well, we're we're super excited to have you. I know that that most of uh, most of my colleagues here on this call have read the book, but um, would you mind just giving us a little bit of an overview of decolonizing wealth? I'm I'm super curious to know what your motivation was behind writing the book and and also what inspired the second edition. Sure. So. I am, um, as was shared in the introduction, a Native American. I grew up in North Carolina. Um, I am, am from a family and a community that has no wealth. Um, and uh, I'm quite a not the typical person that you would often find working in philanthropy, at least, you know, almost 20 years ago when I found my way into the field. And coming from that background, um, I had so many unique experiences kind of being thrown into this space that was very privileged, um, lots of resources and uh, very few people of color at that time in the sector. And so I uh, have always been a person that loves storytelling and I kind of chronicled my experiences through the years. I also experienced some really painful moments um, in, in, my, in my career where I thought I was doing the right thing by community or I was advocating for what I thought was the right thing. And at some point, honestly, I got a little disillusioned about the entire sector and thought like, maybe this isn't the place for me to make a difference in the world. Maybe working around money and wealth is, is like, you know, toxic or, or evil in some way. And so I had to go on my own journey to kind of heal from some of the experiences that I had and to really find my place in the world and, and to sort of reconcile, um, you know, this, this experience that I had. And what I also understood is that my experience was, was just very shared. I wasn't the only one who had a difficult time navigating this space. You know, many women, um, LGBT folks, other people of color who come from marginalized backgrounds who are often hired into this very privileged space because of the networks we have and the communities we represent often face um, a type of oppression or a forced assimilation into this like very dominant way of being. And I remember so clearly, you know, one day being asked by um, someone I was working for what side I was on. Edgar, are you on the side of community or are you on our side? And I was like, I, I didn't know that there was a side. <laughs> I thought we were just here to like support community. And so, you know, I there are so many dynamics in philanthropy that are about legacy and maintaining wealth and reputation and that are very performative that I got to a place where I, I just thought, you know, if we're really going to ever achieve this, this DEI stuff that we talk about at conferences all the time, we've got to just have a, a different conversation and get really real about it. And so I, I decided to write the book um, 
out of what I felt like was obedience to my ancestors, but also um, I felt the weight of all of these stories, my story and all the stories I had collected um, that needed to be shared. Um, and I, I see the book as a critique, a, a very loving critique of the sector to really call out a lot of dynamics that are at play that we've been too afraid of discussing in the past in hopes that we can get to a more authentic place around like what's really happening and how can we have better solutions for it. And in the book, I bring in um, sort of the history of colonization in this country and a critique of how wealth has been amassed. And I'm just asking that this sector have um, a, a true sense of how we're connected to that because we are um, absolutely a, a byproduct of a system that hasn't been fair. And so as we are getting up every day, going to work, trying to do good, we have to um, bring that truth with us and account for that and try to use these resources in a way that is respectful to, to that history. So that's what the book is about in a, in a nutshell and um, the work that we're trying to do. Yeah. So yeah, listening to your story, you mentioned going through this process of self-healing. And, and I imagine that this was a bit of a reconciliation in terms of like figuring out is your, is your place in the world really in philanthropy and really in wealth? And I'm wondering, like, as you were going through that process of self-healing, did you ever imagine that you were going to, to make this transition from self-healing to healing others? And even, you know, to, to a greater degree, not just healing others, but helping to heal this whole sector. Um, I never imagined that first. Um, and I um, wrote the second edition um, largely because of that reason. Since the first edition came out in 2018, the world has changed and flipped upside down. It feels like three or four times, right? And there's so much pain in the world. And um, I, I did begin to see and understand through my work, through all of the talks, through the workshops, through everything that we were doing on launch this organization, um, that I was be beginning to be uh, identified as a healer. And I remember being introduced at a conference like, um, you know, Edgar, he's a healer. And I, was, and I was like, what? Am I a healer? What does that mean? Um, and that's, that's a very serious kind of sounding title. And it seems like it would have a lot of responsibility. But what I came to understand is that, you know, I talk about money being medicine and how we use it, but also other things that we're doing, like telling our story, being brave um, and uh, sharing those stories is a form of medicine. And person after person after person has come to me over the past three years to actually share how the work we're doing has um, enriched our lives. In fact, I, I remember being in Canada once and a, a couple came to me and said, uh, not only did this book save her life, it saved their marriage because she was so um, stressed out at work with all trying to reconcile and figure a lot of things out and just kind of carrying the weight of a lot of things and that she had physically gotten sick and kind of hearing my story and the stories of others. Um, she found some some clarity around what she needed to do. She needed to actually leave that job in that situation. And in doing so, her health improved and she became a, a, a better person and a better partner and that ultimately saved their marriage. And they were like thanking me like I was this like person who had like, you know, made directly made that happen, which was kind of odd. I'm like, well, I'm so thankful that all that happened. But there are many accounts of where folks have, have you know, kind of looked to us as healing and 
you know, I, I can't take full credit for this, you know, healing and reconciliation. These are really indigenous ideas and practices that have been a part of my community forever. And to be honest with you all, when I got to the solutions part of the book, like it's easy to critique, like all these things are bad. This is what's broken. This is what's wrong. And I was really pushing myself to get to, well, what is like, what is my solution to fix this? I, I kind of at first didn't want to go in that direction because I felt like, oh, I'm Native American. So obviously I'm going to like bring the Native American perspective into this. It's too on the nose, right? And as I searched for like something else, there was just nothing else for me. And I'm like, if something's broken, the only thing I know to do is to, to heal it. And this is how we heal. It's through this process that I share in the book that we can find healing personally. We can find healing in our organizations and we can we can think about healing um, as a role for this sector. In the book, you describe how medicine exists in these many forms and that it's the purpose of medicine is to help heal. And you say that money can be a medicine and so can storytelling. And you describe the stories of Camille Kalama and her efforts to prevent the building of the 30 meters telescope on Mauna Kea. And you also share the story of Andre Perez, who spoke at the same conference you were at, and he, he flew there directly from his job um, as coordinating the protection of that mountain. And these stories, I think, are really essential. But how do you balance that openness to storytelling and a diverse range of different perspectives without pressuring people of color to be overly open or to share their struggle? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Um, I think when we are ready to share our stories, the, the, the story will come. And, and for me, it's easy to kind of put me on a pedestal like, oh, Edgar's so brave. He's done all of this work, but I haven't always been brave. I've been afraid to speak up. I've been, you know, um, at risk of losing a job if I tried to push against the status quo, right? So I absolutely understand what it's like to not feel brave enough to share. Um, I also know what it feels like to be the only um, you know, Native American or whatever person in a space and, and feel the weight and responsibility of always having to be the one to teach or to share. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's really, um, we, we all will know when we're called um, to respond with, with sharing our stories. And, and maybe being a storyteller isn't the medicine that someone has, um, but uh, maybe it's some other gift or superpower that you have to make change in the world. So it's not that everyone has to get a microphone and get on a stage um, and, and, and talk or share. Um, but I, I do think that storytelling is a very powerful form of medicine. It's, we can put out all the research reports and we do that in the sector quite a bit, right? Like there's so many like academic books about philanthropy and leadership and and those are important, data matters. But at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons um, my book has had such an impact is that it's just a heartfelt story. Like we love a good story as human beings and it's a powerful way to shift hearts and minds. And the other thing about a story is that it's not up for debate, right? Like folks often say, do you get all this pushback? And I'm like, no, I actually don't. I'm sure everyone is not here for what I have to say, but when you're sharing your personal experience, it is facts. This is how I've experienced the world and what I have seen and experienced on my journey in this sector. So there's something sort of like profound about that, that is based in my personal reality that's, that can't be contested. So 
I think that, you know, we, we all should just kind of lean into that. And if the, the universe calls you to speak up and share your story, then, you know, I think that story will find a place and a time to come out. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And, um, you know, speaking of, of sharing stories, um, you know, I, w- I was really sort of debating a lot, like on how to approach this conversation, because I am a white male. Um, and since reading the first edition of your book, I have been really trying to figure out how to decolonize myself. And, you know, another part of my own identity is that I'm Jewish. And you may know right now we're in the middle of the Jewish high holy days. And it's the time between Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, um, and Yom Kippur. And during this time, Jews around the world atone by acknowledging uh, and apologizing for our sins and for seeking forgiveness from those that we've harmed and committing to do better in the upcoming year. Um, and it feels very much like, you know, the Jewish religion is aligned to this sort of sense of justice that you write about and to repairing the world, which we call uh, tikkun olam. And so for me, your book was especially timely and poignant on so many levels. So thank you for helping me like find my own voice and in, in telling my own story here. I love that. So um, you talk about your indigenous identity as a sort of foundational piece of your approach. And I know that some folks who might struggle talking about white supremacy because their whiteness is a central pillar of their own identity, and it can feel like their value and their family history and sort of everything is tied to this sense of being white. I'm wondering, do you have any advice on how to frame the dialogue for folks like this? Yeah, I I love that question. You know, I, I often say when I'm talking about white supremacy that I'm not talking about white people. And I, I know that seems like um, that might be hard to kind of separate in some ways, but, you know, there are white people, right, who are who are a race and a cohort of folks that have a shared experience and a shared privilege to, to um, you know, simply the, the color of skin. But but white supremacy is an is an ideology. This it's a it's a big lie that someone came up with, right? It is like propaganda. It, it's not a real thing, um, but it is like the most successful lie that's ever been told. And um, and and this this is sort of um, a message that has just permeated every aspect of our society, and we've all internalized it at some level. I am an indigenous person who has internalized ideas of white supremacy because of the books I've had to read in school and what I was taught and just the world that we live in. So when we talk about decolonizing ourselves, kind of, which is like unlearning in a lot of ways and relearning ways of being, I have to actively work to do that because I have internalized lies uh, that have been, um, um, you know, just permeated uh, throughout my lifetime um, because of the, the history and the systems that we live in, right? Um, I have to um, say to myself, you know, like, I, I, you know, I'm beautiful and I may not meet this standard of beauty or I'm, um, I'm, I'm smart and I'm a leader, even though I lead in a different kind of way. And so it's it's discerning the the difference between the two things, white people and white supremacy. And also for white people, it's really important for you all to understand that this lie that has been told um, actually hurts you as well, right? Like it's obvious how white supremacy has hurt indigenous folks, black folks, other people of color, but this lie that has been circulating for so long now actually harms all of us. And it does create these uh, feelings of guilt and shame. And, um, you know, it creates this isolation, I think, uh, in um, white families and just 
you know, all types of, um, you know, it shows up in different ways. And so that's why it's so important for, for white people to be a part of dismantling uh, white supremacy because, we, you know, we've got to be like, this is not working for us. <laughs> this is not working for white people. It is not working for indigenous people. Um, so my, my um, attempts to dismantle white supremacy is not an attempt to harm white people or to uh, escort white people off this land, you know, <laughs> whatever kind of ideas people tend to come up with. But it is acknowledging that there is this ideology it has hurt some more than others. It has created privilege and opportunity for some. But at the end of the day, the, the net value of white supremacy is a major negative zero for, for all of us. And it's, um, it's something that is just um, really hurting the very fabric of our, our society and our way of being. And we've got to figure out a way to turn this thing around and, and get our, our country back on the right track here and bring our communities back together. You're here. You know, a moment ago, you were describing that when you entered the field of philanthropy 20 years ago, that it was it was rare for there to be an indigenous person, um, you know, that, that was working in philanthropy at the time. Um, in, in the book, in the chapter titled House Slaves, you write that the most excluded and exploited by today's broken economy possess exactly the perspective and wisdom needed to fix it. Um, you also write the evolution and innovation arise from difference and variation, not from sameness, right? And yet we know that um, many grantmakers um, still exclude people of color and that they're rare in philanthropy and that when they are hired into um, the ivory towers that they're still expected to assimilate. I'm very curious, do you have any examples of, of any grant-making organizations that have really made significant progress towards not only diversifying their own staff or their board of directors, but that are also giving people of color um, the freedom and the power to really influence change within their organizations? Yeah, Sam, you asked really good questions and there's always like seven questions in one question, um, but I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so one, thanks for naming, we still have a problem and y'all, you know, we've invested hundreds and thousands of dollars, if not millions by now in different diversity initiatives in the sector. And we still have a major diversity problem. More than, you know, 90% of our executives are white, 90% of boards are white. Um, right now in this country, to my knowledge, there's only one Native American on the board of a national private foundation, you know, um, I don't, I don't know off the top of my head all the other percentages, but I know that it's they're small. And, um, and there's a direct correlation between who sits in those seats and where money goes, right? We know that less than 10%, about 8% of grant dollars go explicitly to communities of color, which is like so just like nuts to hear. Um, but I, I think it's um, deeply rooted to the lack of diversity um, in the, the seats of power in this sector. At the same time, I do think there's progress, um, but the progress is nuanced. What, what has happened in the last couple of years from you know, my interpretation, there's a little bit of data that might back up these assumptions that I have. Um, with the emphasis on diversity, there was a, a rush to kind of like hire people of color, right? And I can't tell you how many times a week I get called by search firms. So you know, <laughs> we, we need us one of those, you know, can you help us find one, right? Oh, um, I think that's going to be a future line of revenue for me. I'm like, I, I should be paid for helping you all do this job, okay? But, um, you know, what what happened is that we, we saw an uptick in the numbers of people of color, and then we saw a decline in the numbers 
because what often happens with diversity initiatives is that we do run out and we hire people of color, but we don't change our cultures or our, our, our way of being. And it gets, it's really difficult for, for people to feel supported and successful um, in those roles. Um, literally, I've heard so many executive directors of foundations uh, say, I was brought in, they weren't a person of color, but my hands were completely tied. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't make any changes. I felt like the hired help to this board or whatever. And I was just a face that they wanted to be able to say they had done this thing. And so what happens when brilliant people of color don't feel like they can lead and be their best, they leave. And so we had this mass exodus out of philanthropy. And so we have to go beyond diversity to understand that it's not just about filling the seats with different types of folks, but what's, um, what's deeply rooted in our culture um, that, that needs to change so that we can have a sense of belonging and empowerment. I do think some folks are, are really working hard at this and, you know, I'll, I'll call out the Katali Foundation, you know, I, I know Regan Pritzker very well and Crystal there. And um, I've seen the way that the Pritzkers have engaged leaders from the community to really actually hold power and make the final decisions about resources because that's that's the that's the thing that's really key at the end of the day. It's like we can have all the performative diversity kind of um, things from participatory grant making to whatever. And there's some good and models of all of those things out there. But if at the end of the day there's still a room of like white men who make the final decision, then we're not really sharing power. Um, I think um, you know where I'm really pushing the conversation is like yes, more diversity, but deeper than diversity, how do we shift the culture? But even beyond shifting the culture, how do we shift ownership of the resources, right? And so beyond making, you know, a handful of good grants uh, to communities of color, how do we think about redistributing wealth? We have a robust ecosystem in this sector right now of BIPOC-led intermediaries. We've built philanthropic infrastructure, even in our in Native communities, I could probably name you know, um, half a dozen to, to more or more of native-led philanthropic intermediaries who are able to do this good work, but just need capital. And so what would it look like to actually not push on these ivory towers for a hundred more years to make the change to say, hey, just put your money over here and let these folks do this work in their communities in a self-determined way. I think all the above need to change and be impacted, but there are very various levers of change that I think could be more powerful and transformative at the end of the day. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And I'm so excited to hear you talk about shifting the culture and, and even more importantly, sharing power. You know, from my perspective, having been involved on the operations side of philanthropy for many years, um, I've sort of experienced firsthand like what the power imbalance often feels like between funders who are making grants and the nonprofits who are seeking those grants, right? And that we know that the funders hold all the cards in this process. And, you know, I would say up until last year, um, very little had ever changed or evolved in the sense of that power sharing. We saw, you know, that manifest itself in these like very burdensome grant applications and the length of time that nonprofits have to wait to find out about funding. And if they're fortunate enough to receive a grant, then they're expected to um, provide very specific, often very difficult to accumulate data to demonstrate their progress or lack of progress. 
Um, and they even have to change the way that they approach their their mission or doing the fundamental work of their nonprofit organization to to sort of meet the needs of the foundation that's providing the grant. And so, you know, it strikes me that last year, a lot of these nonprofits sort of finally stood up and with one voice raised their hand and said, like, we're drowning, you know, as a result of COVID and all of the, the cultural change that is taking place. We can't serve our constituencies as well as we should be able to. So funders, we need you to, to help um, reduce all of this administrative burden, and we need you to find ways to start leveling the playing field a little bit so that we can achieve our mission and, and help you achieve your mission in a better way as well. So let's talk for a minute about like, you know, this power dynamic that exists and some of the ways that you might be sensing that that, that um, power sharing is beginning to happen. And, and one of the, the ways that that gets me very excited that you mentioned in your book is participatory grant making, where members of the community, constituents who are actually being helped are invited in to participate in that end-to-end process. Like, is this one way that we think we can begin to see um, the culture shift and power begin to get shared? Yeah, you know, I appreciate you naming what has happened over the past year, because I do think it felt like we've been talking about making these changes for changes for like, I don't know, 15 years. And in one year, lots of things happen really quick for for the good. So I'm really inspired by that. And, um, and I hope that now that folks have done some of this stuff, like provided general operating support, reduced the administrative burden that they will see that it's also just easier for the foundation staff, you know, like I've been on both sides and it's a lot of work for the people who work inside foundations to collect all those forms and all that information as well. Um, But, you know, um, in terms of participatory grant making in general, I think it's a good thing. Um, And it's, it's something that's been around for a long time and it's kind of reemerging as a trend in philanthropy right now. Um, I do think that there's some nuance in it because, you know, our field is, is so funny. Um, our field at the end of the day does not, people do not want to give up power, right? So we, we create sometimes um, alternative ways to, to appear to be sharing power, giving up power, but we're not really giving up power. So I do think it's, again, kind of like, it comes back down to who's making the final decisions because if we bring all these folks into our organization and uh, ask them to do this work and then what they decide actually is not what happens, like someone else has to approve, then we're not, we're not really sharing power. We've just kind of done a dance here. Um, the other thing that I, you know, I'm still kind of thinking through, I don't have sort of a final opinion about this, but I do know because I work with a lot of social movements and grassroots leaders and folks that often foundations are tapping these leaders, bringing them in. They're so busy. They already have a lot going on. And so I just want to be clear when we're, when a participatory process is being designed, are we asking community to do our job? And like, how do, if we, how do we design a process that really isn't a heavy lift for them because of the power dynamic, they're often going to say yes we, we do, you know, pay them, but we, I think we have to just be really aware of our intentions. Are we trying to do this to have some, to be cool, 
to put activists on our websites to, to uh, say we appear woke and our, you know, is this, what is the scale of this? You know, um, I talked to a funder recently who was like, we have $5,000 want to create a participatory. I was like for $5,000, like that's not meaningful <laughs> for them. Are you like, just like give the money to someone. Right. Yeah. So th- there's a, there's a lot of uh, nuance in that, that we have to just like ask ourselves the question, you know, like what is, what is really the intent here? Are we really shifting power? Or are we just creating another level of activity for, for the community and for ourselves, another process to facilitate that's not resulting in a major shift of dollars? Is more money going to communities of color as a result of this process? Or are we just taking some money and, and putting it through like this process for optics and then and, and, you know um, sending the money out? So there are great models and then there are models where it's like, oh, I'm not really sure what's happening there. It looks good on the surface, but we need to like be uh, bring a little bit more analysis to the intentions behind the process. All right. And that feels like a really good segue to what will be my final question. And then I will turn the microphone back over to Rachel and, and uh, we will uh, let some of my colleagues ask a couple of questions as well. So um, Edgar, if you, if you had a chance to uh, take a look at our website, you'll know that Submittable develops software to launch, manage, and measure uh, social impact programs. And so I'm really curious, do you have a perspective on like what role um, technology might be able to help in terms of decolonization? Like, is there something that software or technology can do to help uh, grant-making organizations further decolonize or, or make grant-making more equitable? I think there's so much that technology can do. Um, you know, there's there's the opportunity absolutely to democratize philanthropy, you know, and make that like an efficient process, right? <laughs> um, by you know, um, by using technology and 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 not creating these 500 page board books that used have been used to be like the bane of my existence working in foundations. Um, I also think that technology creates the opportunity for more transparency and ac- accountability, right? Like. Collecting data is really important um, and uh, to hold ourselves accountable to our our mission statements and to our intentions. So um, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for technology to support those types of campaigns within the sector. Um, Who's giving what to who, right? And um, knowing that, you know, for for many, many years, um, Native Americans at Philanthropy did that report like decades ago that was like only 0.03% of funding goes to Native Americans. And that just having that one data point has has helped us campaign for a long, long time to like increase that over the years. So it's there, there's a major role in terms of the efficiency, you know, because I'll say to as a um, grant maker, um, I will say in our defense, because um, I do critique us a lot, um, that often we are understaffed and we um, there's, you know, I've had portfolios of like, you know, tens of millions of dollars and like 80 grant applications per docket. And the sense of urgency and the lack of capacity on our end has been a barrier to be as equitable as we need to be, right? I probably haven't had the time in the past to do those extra steps that it would take to get that grant to that group. And so I think the efficiency that you all provide, because I've, I've played around in your programs and it's, it's really clean, it's really helping um, bring philanthropy into the 21st um, century um, can open up more space for folks to build relationships and spend less time like, reading these stacks of paper um, in, in the old-fashioned way. <laughs> amen. Amen to that, brother. Uh, thank you, Edgar. I really appreciate uh, chatting with me. I'm going to let Rachel uh, um, 
direct us through the rest of the conversation. But thank you again, Edgar. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Thanks to you both. Um, so we have a few folks from Submittable prepared to ask questions. Um, Submittable team, if you would please introduce yourself and your role at Submittable before asking your question, that would be great. Um, and we'll we'll start with Chad. Hi, I'm uh, Chad Viegas. I'm the talent engagement specialist here at Submittable and a uh, member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes uh, locally here. So it is uh, a pleasure to meet a fellow Native American. Um, and my question, I'm very excited to ask is, uh, I love what you had to say about pop culture as both a way to connect with others and as a form of storytelling medicine. I'm curious if there's any pop culture you're enjoying currently that feels like good medicine. And, and I appreciate being able to use the term good medicine because I use it all the time, but now I can officially use it in the question. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, oh, I mean, pop culture is, I mean, I, I am a consumer of it and I, um, it's such a just mainstream way to, to get ideas into the world and to shift, you know, you know perceptions in, in a really impactful way. Um, so obviously I'm going to talk about Reservation Dogs. If, um, if you all have not seen the new show on Hulu, it's so good. This is one of the first or maybe the very first TV show that we've ever had. That's like all native actors, writers, producers, creators, and it's, it's a hit show. I live in New York City. There's a billboard in Times Square with Native people, Native young people on it, which just blows my mind. Sad that it's taking me to this long in life to see that representation of my community. But um, I'm really inspired. We're having a moment, um, you know, in our communities right now with these breakthroughs in entertainment and then um, you know, so many great books out there right now. And tonight I'm co-hosting an event. At, this is Fashion Week in New York for Indigenous designers here. So um, our community is kind of killing it in all types of um, spaces and pop culture right now. So, um, you know, I, I would definitely check out, um, you know, that TV show and just, you know, pick up Tommy Orange is a fantastic writer. There's just so much good um, stuff happening, um, content being created by indigenous folks right now. So thank you for that question. Thanks. Thank you. Um, we have a question from Ben. Yeah, hi, thanks, Rachel. Edgar, thanks for your time and thanks for taking the question. In your book, you described uh, a concept called both slash and, where it's possible to incorporate good ideas or inspiration from two seemingly opposite sides. Do you have any examples of both slash and in your world in philanthropy where maybe founders, nonprofits, constituents can come together in a sense of uh, connectedness? Yeah, thank you for that question, Ben. Um, yeah, you know, if there, there's research that came out a few years ago about characteristics of white dominant culture. And if, if you haven't read some of these articles are really fascinating because just really kind of inform us around some of the practices, the way, the way that we operate that's really steeped in dominant culture that often make it hard for people of color to feel a sense of belonging or to thrive in organizations. And frankly, it make, they make it hard for white people because, you know, this fascination with like perfectionism and, you know, who can be perfect? None of us can, right? All the time. So one of the tenets of white dominant culture is either or thinking It's being so absolute that something is like black or white or, or whatever. And the reality is we're, we live in a world that's just full of complexities and, um, and gray areas, right? And sometimes that's, that's just the way things are. 
the example that I share in the book is that I was raised in a, in a Christian faith. And, um, you know, and if I had to check a box, I guess my religion would be Christianity, although I kind of see myself as more spiritual these days. But um, and even even some other Native American um, relatives have been like, how can you be like Native American and Christian? Isn't that like a oxymoron or something? And um, I've come to really understand, you know, that I can be all the things at the same time, all the time, right? Because that's that's just how it is. And in our work in philanthropy, I think it's just being like honest and calling things what they are, right? Like, you know, yes, we're doing good things with this money. And it's also true that sometimes the money came from a bad place or there's a history behind this money that we need to come to terms with and call out and, um, and just bring that. Uh, awareness into how we're actually doing our work now. Um, you know, uh, one example that um, that comes to mind is the Bush Foundation, who I did some work with recently. You know, the Bush Foundation, I'm sure y'all know them. I mean, great foundation. They're not radical. There's the run of the mill, good foundation in St. Paul, Minnesota. And um, but they did some work to say, hey, we've been doing good work. We have like a, a program that specifically supports Native nation building. And we also do, you know, our, our, our part to support black communities and other communities of color here. But let's actually also acknowledge that we've benefited from a history of accumulated privilege because of the resources we have. And um, so although we've done good work, we have benefited from this system. It's all true. Both things are true at the same time. So what is our obligation to do something even more uh, radical to um, kind of help repair this history that's been rigged in our favor and against these communities? And they made a commitment earlier this year of $100 million um, on top of their grant making uh, to um, basically redistribute, to create two trust funds, one for Native folks, one for Black folks, to take those dollars and, and redistribute them in their communities in a very self-determined way. And so it's like when you begin to like understand that all the complexities and just own up to it, we're not perfect. Um, and we're, we're all, we all have a history that's complicated, but we've got to be honest about it and, and, and speak the truth about it because that will set us free to be able to live in our truths, to do our work in a, in a way that where we're not, you know, kind of trying to, to sweep our stuff under the carpet and, and, um, we can be more authentic in our approaches to supporting communities. Awesome. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Edgar. Um, Caroline. Yeah, thank you. Edgar, it's good to meet you. I'm Caroline Sims. I do sales enablement here at Submittable, and I very much appreciate your book. One of the things I appreciate most is that it's written in a way with stories and plain language that make it accessible to everyone. That was my side comment. My question is that here we are in 2021 and 2020 presented this opportunity for all of us to become more aware, be better listeners. And you talk a lot about listening in your book. And specifically the question is, do you feel like now that we're in 2021, funders are starting to embrace some of the empathetic listening that you called for in your book? Do you have any examples of that? I want to be hopeful, Caroline, like I, I really do. And I do see things moving forward in so many ways. I'm also just cautious because of our history and philanthropy of just sort of relapsing to business as usual. And I, I definitely can say there are funders who have reached out to me um, as a result of 2020 to say like, oh, we want to 
create this black lead fun or like, you know, just trying to respond to the moment. And as I've circled back to them more recently, they're like, oh, we, you know, we've, we've decided we're not going to do that because the heat is not on or the pressure is not on quite as much right now. Right. So I know we have a tendency to do our great making around new cycles and what's popular and hot in the moment. Um, at the same time, I do feel like there was a breakthrough in 2020, but also just in the last three years where I think philanthropy has been having a reckoning with itself um, that really inspires me that maybe we're not going to relapse completely to where we were before. I don't think we're going to stop having conversations about race and power and how we show up and, and, and um, in the field. There are foundations um, that um, one example I'll give, I don't think they'll mind me sharing, the Weingart Foundation in California is doing some really remarkable work where they are actually hiring a researcher to like research their history and how the money was made and what who may have been harmed in the process so they can have a, pro a, a truth and reconciliation with community over that. That blew me away. I'm like, who does? What? I never imagined that a foundation would do that, <laughs> right? And at the same time, they're holding listening sessions across um, their grantee community to really understand, like, what, what, have, how have we failed communities in the past, and what do we need to do better? So I, I do think that we're at a new place now where we're not so naive to think we're the good guys and we only help. We, we we've only done good and. Uh, but we are interrogating like, yes, we're trying to do good. No one is coming to work at a foundation saying, oh, I can't wait to be like racist today and not find black people. Right. But there are inequalities that are like built into our systems and practices and programs that have not resulted in the impacts that we want to see. I mean, the, like the 8% thing that I said earlier, that is like embarrassing. It is embarrassing that only 8% of grants go to communities of color. It is embarrassing that 90% of boards and executives are, are still white after all of this like progress and work that we've done to change that. So I, I do feel like we've reached a place that the status quo is not working and our way of doing business is not working. So we are beginning to look to community to listen, to say, okay, um, it, it ain't working the way we did it. Uh, we need to grant, make it a different way. We need to like, you know, um, maybe trust uh, solutions that are in communities. So um, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, but we have to all continue to push because if not, we, we are in jeopardy of kind of relapsing to the way business as usual. Thank you. I'm gonna call on myself and interject a question. Um, so you bring up the idea of focusing on um, what's working in community and supporting that rather than focusing on what's broken necessarily, especially when you discuss um, reimagining the notion of people needing to be quote unquote empowered. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what that looks like in practice. Well, you know, I'll, I'll speak on behalf of native communities right now. Um, I, I constantly am talking with funders and others about what's going on in native communities. And there's so much um, narrative shifting that I have to do before we can even get to the real conversation because of um, one, our community has been, you know, super invisible. Um, we just talked about the TV show. Like it took all the way until 2021 for me to see a contemporary native person on television that wasn't in some stereotypical kind of role. 
Um, you know, we still live in a society that, um, you know, thinks it's okay to have um, my people as a mascot of a sports team. And, um, you know, so these harmful kind of mindsets that are in place or the preconceived ideas around, you know, um, our community with the stereotypes and, and some real data around like suicide rates or alcoholism. So there's just such a mindset sometimes where folks say, well, I need to, you know, I want to help, but there's a, a white saverism kind of that's in that uh, of I need to go and do all these things without also understanding, yes, we have those real problems in our communities, but we also are like resilient and have some really like badass solutions, right? Like finally, um, after so long with the fires in Northern California, people are beginning to say, oh, what about, like, there are tribes who have traditions of, like, burning in ways that have prevented those fires for, like, many, many generations. So let's, like, actually talk to those folks and maybe put some of those practices into place. Um, our communities were on the front end of protecting ourselves during this pandemic with, you know, shutting down our borders before the, the country did anything and making sure we have very high vaccination rates. So there are ways of, um, of, of, of doing things in communities that, that have um, not been seen as solutions. But I think, you know, more and more folks are saying, well, like Native folks have survived a lot. They're still here. Maybe they do know something that we need to understand. So that's sort of like what we have to push back on. I think in our, you know, do-gooder attempts to help, we, we, we can approach folks with the mindset of like, I'm here to save, um, I know best, you know, I'm, you know, th th there's a way to like respect the um, resiliency of folks and the pushback on mindsets that we have in this country about people living in poverty. And, uh, you know, I, I've faced that as a person who has a Southern accent. I moved to Seattle and everyone was like, all the stereotypes they had about me and my people and people in the South because of my accent are just like really kind of silly. <laughs> but those kind of jokes find their, 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 their way into like our work and how we approach designing solutions for communities when we think we know best. So that's why it's so important to, um, to, to shift the paradigm and to really trust the solutions and community and to really listen as we were talking about um, earlier. Thank you. So we had a question from Truxton. Edgar, my name's Truxton. I'm an account manager here at Submittable. I get to work with a lot of the incredible foundations that we do work with. Um, and just want to thank you for your important work. Uh, my eyes have been open to your work, thanks to Sam and the team. And I'm very thankful for them and thankful for what you've shown me. Um, in the books uh, section, um, I believe it's, hold on, let me look it up here, relate, that's exactly what it is. Um, you write that every institution and process that deals with money has in common a focus on transactions rather than relationships. How do you think trust-based philanthropy is making progress in transitioning funders from transactions to those relationships? I think that trust-based philanthropy is really taking off more and more. At least I hear people talking about it. And I think um, it's it's being seen as a best practice. Um, and um, but there there's there's a ways to go. <laughs> there's a ways to go. I will still say, you know, now that I'm running my own public fund and, and nonprofit, um, I'm interacting with funders as a grantee and um, so I'm like, wow, they're, they're, you, you really need me to, to fill all of that. You need all that information. Why? You know, um, but at the same time, I've had many funders. I've gotten grants from large institutions where I haven't filled out any paperwork, like including the Ford Foundation. So, 
it, it goes to show that when when foundations really want to do it, they can. And um, I think we have to just kind of keep pushing and community and nonprofits have to keep demanding that. And I do think that's such an important role that you all play um, with your technology that you can you can sort of help with that, right? Like you're helping to lighten that load for grantees who are seeking funding and making things um, easier um, so that maybe foundations can get more into an authentic relationship with folks. And then just one little nuance I want to add to that because it's so important because for so long there was this conversation of philanthropy around proximity, like we need proximity with folks and there's, there's a nuance in that, right, where sometimes nonprofit folks may not want to be in a relationship with a founder, foundation person. Maybe they just want your money and they want to go do their work. When I tell you during COVID, I had a funder who was like, we want to give this money to support Native communities and we want you to take us to the community to like meet people and do all this. And I was like, hmm, you really want me to take you to Arizona where literally my community is in crisis and people are trying to get water to people where 30% of folks don't have water or electricity. You want me to stop them to take you for a meeting. That's not how you build a relationship. Building a relationship is like based on trust. And like, sometimes it does involve like, let me just give this funding to you and, and like take a step back. I think more and more, this is why we're seeing more BIPOC intermediaries kind of springing up because we already have those relationships and funders in the ivory tower don't have to like create those relationships um, from the ground up. And I'm also wondering at this point in time, is it even possible for, some, for those institutions to build an authentic relationship with our communities? There's a question I have around that, um, that I'm not sure. I think in some cases, yes, but maybe Sometimes there's been a lot of damage and it's just not possible. I don't want to be like not hopeful about that, but there are ways to build a relationship that are respectful and, and not taxing on the communities. And we have to just kind of figure that out. Um, um, it can't be a forced relationship, right? Like I want you to be in a relationship with me if they don't want to be in a relationship back, just kind of like with people, right? <laughs> but yeah, thank you, Truxton. No, that's a great point. Thank you, thank you very much. Hi there, Edgar. Um, I'm Laura. I'm a content writer on the marketing team. Um, just thank you for this and thank you for the book and all of your work. Um, so you touched on this a little bit already, but um, at the end of the book, you talk about um, to be versus to seem. Um, and these days when so many folks are focused on optics, um, how do we sort of avoid the vanity surface level conversations and initiatives um, that often happen around these issues? Or how do we kind of push past those into to meaningful work? I like this question a lot. For, for my organization, we've made a decision. We don't put don't, uh, funders on our website. Um, you know, we got a grant from Mackenzie Scott. I didn't put out the press release or run to Twitter to thank Mackenzie Scott. We're thankful. We're really grateful. The gift is meaningful. Um, but at the same time, it's... Um, our decision to like not do that is a decision to not feed into that 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 vanity monster. Uh, plus, like Mackenzie Scott wouldn't have seen the tweet; she doesn't care. <laughs> so it's like, why are we announcing all of this stuff? You know, they actually asked us, told us we didn't have to do that, which I appreciate it. So I think there just has to be a shift, maybe on the funder side, where we say. Um, you know, let's stop taking credit for so much. Let's stop asking folks to put out a press release. I just got a grant from another um, foundation that has put out so many press release and like tweeted so many times that they gave us money. And we're like, thank you. But like, uh, like you did your job. You're a foundation that gives money. You gave money. Congratulations. You did your job is kind of how I see it, which, uh, which is, 
I know coming from a place of privilege, because I've worked in philanthropy and the average nonprofit probably doesn't feel like they can say that. Um, but I think if we could collectively start saying, you know, that's not best practice behavior that you you need to like, um, you know, ask your grantees to like promote that you gave them money and all of those kinds of things. And, and also like understanding that no single foundation can take the credit for any win in community. And we often do that in this sector, like a foundation will say, we won this. And um, I've worked at foundations that put out those press releases, but I'm like, but they also have funding for 20 other foundations. So how do we take credit for that win? So those are some of the silly kind of things that we do. So, you know, I, I think we just have to kind of start making fun of people who do that and make it like not cool to do that <laughs> until we, you know, maybe stop, um, you know, but it is, it's, it's hard because the, uh, the DNA of this sector came from a place, we were kind of birthed from a PR incident, right? So like PR is like a part of this sector in so many ways, but we need to um, recenter a community in that and lift up their work and what they're doing and, and less of ourselves. And um, how we get there, I'm still trying to figure out, but there, there are folks who do it really well. And I actually think Mackenzie Scott is a person who's kind of leading that from being very modest and behind the scenes behind um, her work. So that's maybe that'll teach us a, a different way. Edgar, I was gonna ask if you felt like Mackenzie's uh, sort of style of grant making is 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 that the future for grant makers? Does she get close to what you'd like to see from grant makers? I'm really happy about a lot of the ways that work is happening, and um, you know, I think there's a very strong race and gender and other types of analyses she's bringing in the selection of who gets funding. It's large amounts that are transformative. It was the easiest funding I ever received. I didn't have to do anything. I just gave someone an EIN number. Um, there's, uh, you know, and I, I think it's, I also think in all of that, Mackenzie has been honest about, yes, I'm doing this work. I don't want to, I don't want praise for it. And I have benefited from a history and a system that creates unfair conditions. So that's the part I appreciate the most that she actually, um, is addressing the system that allows for so much wealth accumulation in the first place, which is kind of messed up. So, um, I'm glad to see her philanthropy being directed towards organizations that are looking to change that, those root causes. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close us out here. Thank you so much for, for spending time with us today. This was wonderful. Um, Sam, thank you for being our host. And thanks to everyone on the team who read the book and joined the conversation. Thanks, everybody, so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, listener, for joining us today. We'd highly encourage you to visit decolonizingwealth.com pick up a copy of the book, learn more about Edgar's work, donate. You can also check out some great links and resources in our episode notes. Impact Audio is edited and produced by Jordan Marvin and our crew at Submittable. Submittable is a cloud-based social impact platform designed to help your team make better decisions and have a bigger impact. We'd love to partner with you to maximize social good and create lasting change through smarter technology. Find out more at submittable.com. And until next time, take good care.